Welcome to It's a Sublime Life. Inspiration on living an excellent life and seeing the beauty already in life. You can find It's a Sublime Life on most social media platforms. Just search for It's a Sublime Life. talking about a little bit about his charity work and whatever other topics come up what would you like to start with charity work yeah How i mean that's... i mean charity work has been a big um obviously it's big big thing in, in my life over the last six years because of the reasons why i've done it it's um not something that's just close to my heart but obviously it's something that's um obviously close to a lot of people's hearts across staffordshire as well so it's all about remembering my mum and putting a lot of energy and focus into trying to help others like she did. Um, and, you know, it, it is about continuing her legacy and it's not so much about my mum's name and stuff, it's about how it's helped me personally um, yeah. to get over a lot of traumas, or not to get over, but to get over certain traumas in my life, what happened. Um, and also the pos positive implications of how it makes you feel by the way I look at things is, is any bad things that happen in your life you try to turn it into a positive and all the emotions that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis potentially with uh, anxiety, with stress, with depression, with worries, concerns um, I interlink them really well with a lot of challenges that I took part in so it's all the sort of mental attributes that we go through before a challenge. You know, you jump out of a plane, you're feeling nervous, you're feeling scared, uh, you feel sort of claustrophobic, you feel like you're out of your comfort zone, and all them emotions are identical as the stuff that you go through either with somebody's illness or watching somebody die, losing somebody close to you. And they're all the same one. So I found a link of linking um, the charity work by doing something good to positive reinforcement and helping me cope with my own personal anxiety um, that I hid from a lot of people mm. for a long period of time. It wasn't until I realised that 75% of the population in the UK suffer with some form of you know trauma in their life that can relate to yeah. um, the physical side effects. Um, mm. you know, but at the time, I thought I was invincible 27 years of age and you just think you can cope with everything um, and when things start to change and your thought processes start to change and you can't control them mm. that's when it became like what's going on here mm. and because I was hiding it from everybody mm. the only way I could cope with it or blank stuff out was exercise in the gym you know training outside or charity work at that time in my life yeah. Because you took my mind away from stuff. And at the point, what was the point that this was happening to you then? What was going on? So what was the yeah. trigger? Yeah, so it began when my mum, so when all this started was when, when my mum's first started, um, something wasn't right, we were trying to find out what was going on, in the end she had to go private. They found 
and masters they call it and I actually got a phone call when I was at M Club and I was in the changing rooms and my mum told me on the phone we found a mask don't worry we'll fight it everything will be okay yeah. kind of thing uh, and that was the time where you were like I couldn't control anything or what yeah. was going to happen yeah. the implications or the side effects I, I couldn't control nothing so for about a week period um, and then my mum collapsed, went into hospital, watching somebody in excruciating pain. Then was the moment where you think, I can't do anything here. And you're watching yeah. somebody so close to you be in that much agony and pain. Mm. You just want to take it away. You just want to take everything away. Mm. Um, and that was sort of the trigger of the early stages of, of the anxiety. But I didn't mm. know at the time what it was. Yeah. So I was getting little symptoms like shortness of breath. Or I get this like massive rush of um, not so much as adrenaline, but more of a this isn't supposed to be happening. I started to speak to people in the early stages, and they said, "Oh, it's okay. It's just like anxiety because you, you something you can't control, mm-hmm. something going on in your life that's affecting you." And, and they were the physical side effects of what were happening. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't until I actually had um, a panic attack which I've, you know, never experienced anything like that in my life. And your hands are curling up and you're sitting down and you've got the shortness of breath. It happened to work when I was at M Club. And that's when it started. And I'd just come off a night out with my friend, but I was drinking to block out stuff to feel a little bit mm. more normal because mm. I started to, you know, started to get these waves of emotions and trying to blank it out. But mum's lying in a hospital bed. You can't do nothing about it. Mm. You don't have to say these things are in the realms of normality this is yeah. natural yeah you, you're not going to feel completely nothing are you no and, and the, the thing was is that because i was always the strong one because i was the confident one the positive one you can't show weakness so in the early stages you know something's not right with you you can't control what's happening but also you can't show weakness to everybody else whether that's going to work whether that's speaking to people, whether that's going to your local pub, whether that's speaking to your mates, because there's an element of pride, there's an element of embarrassment, there's an element of um, you don't want to let people down, you don't want to see, um, you know, I don't my mum seeing me that I'm down or anything like that. Mm. And it was ironic when I was in a hospital bed when I had the panic attack that my mum was over in the other SGU ward. Did they put you into a hospital? It was only because the the attack was that severe that I got, um, I couldn't control any of it. Looking back now, I, you know, the paramedics were brilliant. They were just like, they knew exactly what was going on. They weren't worried. They just kept saying, Richard, it was quite funny. They were saying, Richard, just breathe slowly. I said, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, but I didn't know what was going on. So you, you know, you think of all sorts of what's going on. Oh my God. You know, but they, they, yeah, but they knew what was happening. Um, and then, because of obviously drinking the night before, obviously that was another factor into it um, yeah. that day. But they were brilliant. They just kept reassuring me. They put a cannula in, took me there just to check, ECG check and everything. But as soon as I said I had like 13 pints the night before, the woman just said, you just had a real trauma, panic attack, severe. Um, I went away that night and it's very poignant is that Peter Andre was on TV with Piers Morgan talking in front of his parents live how he suffered so severely with anxiety that his last attempt to, to, to cure it or to try and feel better was to go into New York City 
And this is pretty much the first time I'd ever even heard of the word anxiety mm. or even what it was. So I just had my panic attack. I come back home, put Piers Morgan on, as Peter Andre is revealing to Piers Morgan about his severe anxiety whilst his parents had never heard it before. And his parents actually witnessed that live in the studio at the same time. And that was the um, sort of start of the process of trying to understand what I was going through. But because I was still trying to be dead brave and I was trying to just block everything out, didn't really, at that time I wasn't speaking to anybody. I knew something had happened, but I just thought I'd just blank it out, blank it out, blank it out. And it probably took me about six months to finally realise that it's okay to sort of let go a little bit mm. or it's okay to show different emotions. Yeah, I mean, it's quite natural to, to want to understand for your own self what is going on before then talking to anybody else about it because it's well that's natural never googled anything never took a pill never went to doctors everything was all my greatest medicine I've always said to this day is you know exercise and talking two of the greatest forms of medicine Um, and you learn to you know, to understand yourself basically and understand yourself a little bit better, understand a situation, a trauma can trigger all different physical and mental emotions. Mm. Um, but I think the moment you actually let go and start to be honest and talk to people, because it's not a case of saying, you know, I never once ever would have classed myself as somebody that was depressed because I don't believe that for a second. Mm. if I was to clinically diagnose myself I would say I was somebody that was bottling so many emotions into a tiny little space in your head and I wasn't letting go so it was as though it was just ready to just go and Mm. obviously the panic attack was probably the start of it not at the time fast forward a few months down the line um, that was the moment where you start to understand a little bit more as the more I started to talk easy started to get Mm. what instantly that when you took did you you start talking to people about it in five minutes and you you was having a pt session i was doing a pt session one of my clients who's a gp and i just told her about certain things i actually went on holiday after the panic attack that day it was horrific because i couldn't cope with it because i kept thinking i shouldn't be here should be back home mum wanted my girl and all this line and then i got like a herbal substance to take with you to take the take like is an anxiety thing and basically it was um fast forward that it was the that was another moment i spoke to my good friend dan and he did like um a little thing with me about fact and fiction and your, your thought processes right so write down what's fact your mum's in hospital mm. she's not very well mm. but what's fiction what can you control what can't you control yeah mm-hmm. and i suppose again that was part of the process in the early stages when you start to feel better, but the actual, the bigger symptoms of the, the breathlessness or daft things like, oh, I'm going to swallow my tongue. Because obviously I had that panic attack mm-hmm. where you lost all control. They used to do that all the time with my tongue to make sure it was still there. Really? Then you realise, obviously you can't swallow your own tongue. You know, mm-hmm. the human body actually can't until obviously if you're unconscious or whatever else, but actually in this physical state, it's impossible to do it. So then you go, okay, that's fiction, mm-hmm. you know. And then when I opened up and started speaking to people, that was then, and I suppose really the journey of, because that was going through my mum's illness, was obviously my own personal journey as well. 
So the famous line of 27 years of my life, I thought was invincible, was then bang, mm. you get a phone call that changes your life forever, changes your thought patterns, your processes, yeah. the way you look at people. Yes, is there an element that you maybe try to attach yourself to, especially in the early stages when I lost my mum, in that period, mm. you know, you attach yourself to that female companionship not replacing your mum you know and I went through like counselling when I was talking to different people and it was funny because it affected my sport so in cricket I was struggling to let go of the cricket ball in a match mm. but if you use them words letting go mm. letting go so a cricket ball you've got to throw it or you've got to bowl it and I think in sport you there is a, a lot of positive mental attitude and um seeing almost visualizing the positive result that yeah. you want at the end of it it gets disturbed a little bit with a, yeah. with a big event like that you just i you know even like cricket cricket's my number one sport i love and breathe it and i'm you know i'm traveling the world now with it and it's great and but if somebody said to me do you want to go and play a game tomorrow you know i would walk on the pitch and give it 125 percent, but mentally i wouldn't be in the same place as i was six years ago that yeah. eagerness that hunger to play mm. you know I'd, I'd be up there seven days a week at the local cricket club I'd be there all the time I'd be the captain I'd do this this and this well if you ask me now I won't thank you for it that's not because I don't want to do it that's just because there's more to life than a little game that you played as a hobby even though I played at a good level and now it's my profession that's the difference now is the fact that I'm living and breathing in our plays in the subcontinents and stuff which gives me great satisfaction gives me the desire the hunger to want to to improve their skills but if you ask me now personally Richard you want to have a go a game of cricket tomorrow I'd be like I can't be bothered with that but six years ago I'd have jumped at the chance to do it and that's just because you learn that life is a bit short and you've got to do what makes you well yeah I, I played the game since I was six so hmm. 27 21 years of living breathing Waking up every day. And I suppose that's a natural life cycle of your interest in cricket. Yeah, exactly. And then just, it, you could probably interlink it with, you know, I'm one of the most confident people you'll ever speak you know speak to in time, but there's, there's also a, not an insecurity, but there's a, you know, you are a bit vulnerable in certain situations. You don't like letting people down. Um, you do think about other people's emotions more now. You do like to resolve situations quicker rather than later. Um, I don't want to f- put in a position where if you know if you fall out with somebody, you want to resolve the situation. If you don't, you walk away, no problem. But at least that you've tried to do it. Mm-hmm. So other people's feelings are like a big factor now, whereas probably pre twenty seven they weren't. Yeah, and I also think that's a, an age thing, isn't it? That's a natural age thing, but also when you've experienced a a big life changing mm. event you you then relook at things yeah I mean there's things I've, there's things that I've done in the past I don't think I, I haven't got any regrets or anything like that you may have chose a different path at times or you might have chose that but you know the way I look at stuff is that everything happens for a reason and you know I, I do generally believe what happened to me especially in the early stages probably a way of slowing me down as well I still live my life at 150 mile an hour now. I still wake up early morning and go for a run or train three times in a day or whatever else and not eat enough food. I still do all them things. But 
I'm conscious about it more now and I think about it more. Whereas in the past, I probably didn't or I didn't think of somebody else's feelings as much. Yeah, I think, as I said, it, it, it's probably an age thing, but, but it's very difficult to... It's very difficult to relate to someone else's feelings if yeah. you haven't experienced that or anything like it. Yeah. You're for yourself, yeah. and and so that and when you're young, you have less life experience. Yeah. You have less likelihood of you experience them feelings for yourself, and of course, therefore, less empathy. Mm. And this, well, people people choose different paths. I could have easily chose a path that related to probably a drink could have easily turned to that because that's the only way that you can blank out certain things even if it's a short period of time um was the times where i probably drank too much and in the life i was leading yeah um people at times thought is he going off the rocks the normal response to that would be maybe you might you might perceive like that but then it got to the point where you can't really change what their opinion is on you just because all of a sudden oh you've lost your mum you've lost your job oh by the way you've lost your license and all of a sudden people are there going going off the rocks hang on am i in prison am i taking drugs am i getting beat up am i in fights am i being physically abusive am i being verbally abusive no 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 yes i had three strikes in the space of six months but as it today made me a person far greater stronger and acceptable to others a hundred percent you know and i'm not at the time yeah is there an element of embarrassment and shame of course there is that's a natural response to go through especially when you class yourself as quite a big figurehead in certain surroundings do you feel let down yeah but are then people going to make a difference in your life if you choose to let them affect you yeah or you get up yeah sort yourself out and do the best thing possible and mm. Charity work was, um, you know, you're always going to have people say different things. But for me, that was something at that time that connected with me mum before she passed away that I had to set out and store. Never did I realise that the long-term effects of it, that like I'm planning two big things this year. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've had a bit of a break from it over the last couple of years. Um, but you're still there. You're still very well thought of. And it makes you feel good um, and you're doing it for others as well. We've, I've always been like that. I've, you only got to look at my job, it's putting other people first all the time. You know, mum yeah. did that forever. And I was getting to the point where I was putting Richard Stoney so far down the pecking order that I actually wasn't putting myself further up. You can't pull from an empty cup. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, something um, like that. And that, that, that's, the, that's the problem. I mean, I think, I've seen from afar your charity work and thought, I thought that is amazing. I don't know how how much, roughly do you know how much you've raised over the that um, years now? So first year was that was that the theme of the big forty of doing forty challenge, which which you know again you never would have imagined the figures that we 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 actually were going to raise in twelve months. And I always say I'm very grateful for the community of Stoke and it shows that everybody comes together. We'll always give the last 50p or pounds to support you know, our local hospice, um, the, you know, the Dougie Mac, which is very close to my heart and also close to a lot of other people's heart. But that 40 challenges never really kicked in until probably about the 30, 31st challenge properly. 
you know, yeah, we had people supporting us and stuff, but it wasn't until I, um, and I can't remember getting there frustrated. It's like, yeah, I went to New York and ran a marathon and got $300 or £300. And I was always grateful, of course I was, but it cost me four and a half grand to go and do it. And then it was like, yeah, it was another challenge and people followed me back home. But the, I was at the time getting frustrated because I was thinking, oh, if I do, if I, at the time, I think the more I do something big, the more people are going to support it. Mm. Whereas actually what I've learned from that is you keep things really simple mm. um, that involves everybody, which creates the biggest noise, mm. um, the greatest atmosphere, and also that uh, the, from, from, from the money side of things, the generosity, that's what keeps people together. So it wasn't until I lived in that box in Asda in Tunstall when finally... Richard Stonia's big 40, so to speak, people started to engage in that. Yeah, the powers of the radio helped. Social media went up. Some some guy living in a box outside Astor in Tunstall. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? It was seven by seven box, me and a good friend, Carl, legend for doing it with me. But that was the moment when it started to actually... What number was that? Um, that had been... Well, it was October time then, so that had been between... 32, 33 challenges. Because mm-hmm. um, right on the back of that, that's, I did the New York, but I didn't realise the impact that living in a box and the story which had on the public and, and the community. Mm-hmm. And I suppose from then, that was then when I did my ball, my first ball, which was the 40th event. So the target at the start was to do £40,000 in a year. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing like 57,000. That's amazing. But the ball brought in 23, 24,000. So it was a, a, like a winter ball at oh, Stoke City Football yes. Club. So, yeah. So yeah. that was the first one I did. And it was very well supported by all my friends, family, people I didn't even know. Um, got some great donations. We told a few stories on the night. Um, Dougie Mack had put together a video that uh, so I narrated um, in the studio signal one and I didn't realize at the time the person Trevor was looking after my account was planning this video at this ball but without my knowing so I knew there was going to be a video but I didn't realize they were going to put all 40 challenges together with me narrating at the start so I got to go to signal one and just he asked me to talk about my mom and they used clip it from the radio into the video, which I didn't know that was the plan. And then that's what they played in my 40th ball. Um, and the last challenge, which I should have done on that night, uh, I learned to dance in six weeks. So I learned to dance to fly me to the moon um, in two minutes, 26. But I couldn't perform it on the night because the lady I was dancing with, a little boy, um, got hot water all over his hands. Oh, God. So he was, she was in Liverpool Children's Hospital within Blessing. But I got to perform it on the Monday. And I absolutely nailed it to the point of the music all the way through. Um, and it, but that was, you know, and then that was, but then the following year, it was like, right, work was still down here, back burner, I took time out of work, back burner down here. And then what's my next challenge? And then I was still not focused on certain areas. And then it just carried on for another two years, really. And then it wasn't until I did Kilimanjaro which was a team of us that did it, but then there was me and two close friends of mine 
Um, we had about 17,000 for that between us. And that was dead simple because we actually raised the money in a working men's club. We got some great prizes and we raised 15 grand in a working men's club. So I think my answer to what you're saying is like, well, it was what you learned along the journey. Yeah. And this is where my focus has always been about the community, is about the people, is about um, businesses will always be very supportive and very generous in their own way, you know. Mm. But very conscious about not losing track of um, what the hospice is about, what it looks, what it stands for. It's not just terminally ill people. You know, it is different people with dementia and Alzheimer's, people over the age of 30 years of age. It is a respite centre. It is a day therapy centre. There's a lot more to it now than just people just think end-of-life care. There's a lot more to it. You don't just go into the hospice mm-hmm. and you don't come out. That's not the case. So it's spreading and telling people about it so they feel a bit more comfortable as opposed to scared, as opposed to is it the green zone or red zone. Green zone is you come out, red zone you're not coming out. You know, And it's not as clinical as that. You know, It isn't like that. It, you know, I always use the words, it's a magical place. Because it is. And in, since I started in 2013, to see the growth yeah. to where it is today and our support and that's why I'll always stand for the people of Stoke as to say right I'm doing something crazy or I'm doing something simple but we can all do it so I've always been I've always my my vision has always been I'll be somebody at the top of a tree mm. and I'll branch down and have an army a team of people mm. that will support you so your friends your family Mm-hmm. colleagues of their friends you know uh, the daughters the the sons and that's your opinion and it just keeps going and keeps yeah. growing and keeps growing and keeps mm-hmm. growing and there's new people joining the tree there's new people coming on board mm-hmm. and they um, have trees of their own I guess. exactly <laughs> so it's like you coming on board and going do you know what i want to raise i'm going to do a cake sale and i'll raise 100 pound now that 100 pound going to the hospice will pay for three sessions of bohemian counseling you know, or a famous one of mine is £20, and it's more than that now because I just met the Dougie Map, but £20 will run the entire facility at the hospice for one minute. Gosh. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm. it's using things to understand, and I, I know it's more than this, but about 25 quid now, but I've always had the gimmick of 20 quid. Who's going to help support the 20 quid? Um, and it, it, it's, it's been a roller coaster. I never would have imagined nearly six years ago now to um, to have, have done probably 60 odd challenges to have travelled everywhere to complete some of these things to raise I reckon my personal raise is well in excess of 150,000 I reckon that's just astonishing I mean you say you know other people can take part other people can do this not everyone is going to be able to raise over one hundred and fifty thousand no, pounds. That is, but it's, but that's amazing. I'm yeah, just trying to like, yeah. give you some, give you credit for yeah. that because that is amazing. Yeah, and and I know what you're saying. Even the fifty p, the twenty p, the ten p, yeah. that counts. Um, but I think it's absolutely amazing to have raised over the contributing factor. The contrib- I'll never. I won't know as it stands today, but that'll just continue to grow, is that, you know, 
with my involvement in, in certain things, you know, I've been to different balls and done like um, raised money for them or I've been to a school and talked about that. That's also the priceless stuff about it is where you're actually going and meet people and also talking about it so people go away and have a little bit of an understanding. It might not be the financial gains, but to, to, to you know, to, I remember in 2015 when I turned up at Dougie Mac's main ball of the year and they said to me, Rich, we're going to use your story, we're going to use everything about what you want. We'd love you to be able to get two beds for us. Each bed costs £2,000. So you think there's nearly 400 people in a room and they're using my story and, and, and me to talk about what I've gone through as a personal connection with, with the audience mm-hmm. so they can actually see a real life, which I find works really well as well. And they said they would be grateful if they got two beds, if two people you know, said, I'll give you £1,000, I'll give you £500, whatever it is. We've got 12 beds, 24 grand. Now... That's not, it doesn't, I mean, I always get, I got in the early stage, I was like, oh, does that go on my account? Does that get credited <laughs> to me? No, it doesn't. But I know in my head that, you know, as, as this progresses, I'll easily be a contributing factor to over a million pounds. Now, that might take me 20 years, it might take me 10 years, it might take me 15 years. I might not get the credit of a million pounds, but I think I'll know myself, which is, I, I'm never after not interested in a pat on the back. I'm not interested in um, a reward or a medal or anything like that. All I want is the people to just go, okay, to one, understand why I do it, which is that, go back to what I said at the beginning about all the feelings of anxiety and stress and worry. Mm. Every minute feels like an hour. Every hour feels like a day. Every day feels like a week when you're watching somebody die. Mm. And all the emotions you're going through you know, here and here and here, all over the place are potentially exactly the same. Even if you're organising a ball, right? You want me. Are people turning up? You're worried. Yeah. You're scared. Yeah. I, I, I want people to be impressed. Yeah. It's interlinking the two together. Right? And that's why my book, what I'm writing this year, is called Rising to the Challenge, yeah. which is basically using the powers of mental health with the success of raising some like raising either money or spreading awareness or doing it and interlinking the two together and having the positive correlation between the two of actually you can you can choose to to swallow in your own self-pity doesn't get any easy when you you know i can't pick the phone up and speak to my mom that never gets any easier or do you choose to try and make a difference and that's that's the decision i made um I also, along the way, had to realise, Rich, you have to start earning money again as well. Because <laughs> I spent half of it. <laughs> I listened to a podcast the other day, actually, about humans needing to belong in a tribe. And that we're designed to feel better when we do things for others. And in turn, we feel the support yeah. from those people. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? See, it's... Yeah... I mean, it's a big world out there and you we can become in- industrialised. I remember, you know, if I look back and think of from a sporty days and M Club days, seven years of working in one building, well, two buildings, doing the same stuff day in, day out, week in, week out. But what you got, what I got into the bad habits of, of, of working without appreciation, working without 
um, financial gains. You know, all of the stuff that we go to work for, people go to work for, is that you, you know, you want to do a good job, you want to impress, you want to make sure everything's okay. But at the end of the day, in that industry, um, and it's not just here, it happens all over there, you become very industrialised in there. So every, every party, every function, you're there, you forget about your close friends, the people actually care about you, stop doing stuff with them, you're wanting to impress at work, so you've got to go and do this, then you're going out there. And actually, at the end of it, you're just a pawn. You know, you are just a tiny person in a bigger picture. And I understand that. You know, nobody's bigger than any business. I get that, I understand that. Unfortunately, the way the world is, is that's, you know, the industry in itself is, 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 you know, for seven years, my life evolved around that building or them buildings. Mm. and trying to make a difference and yeah I made a difference in a lot of people's lives and I potentially changed a lot of people's lives and made think different people are grateful for that um, but did I lose sight of more important things along the way of course I did mm. so it's important about checking in with your own self checking in with your own targets I suppose where you want to be in life and, and if I never got you on the right yeah path. well if I never got sacked in the way I did. And do you know what? I'll always be grateful for that. I look back now and I think, whatever, however it goes about, I'm not going to sit here and say, um, I'm disgruntled or this, that. Was, was I angry at the time? Yeah. Could it have been dealt with in a different way? Of course it could have. Um, but for months, I was obviously, I was carrying a lot of hurt and upset. But again, you learn from that because as much as people love you and love your style or what you do or your implications is that people are creatures of habit. They're creatures of what suits their routine, what is their habits. And you've got all these visions of setting your own place up and running your own classes and running this and doing this. And, and you know what? With the charity happening there was that year was probably the saving grace, really. Uh, it maybe took me two and a half years to actually find my own feet when it comes to work. Um... But looking back, it, it, I was grateful for it, you know. And, you know, I don't hold any grudges against anybody. Mm. Not Certainly not now. Mm. Um, so what did you go on to do then? What's led you into what you do now? So I effectively... So effectively, when I first left in May of 2013, I was doing all the charity stuff. So I said to myself, right, I'm going to take the rest of the year off because I could do you know, got money in the bank. I was doing all these crazy events. Would I have been able to do a lot of these events to the f max if I had a job? And probably the answer to that is probably no. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, can you just take a week off work to go live in a box? Can you take a week off work to go to New York? Can you take a week off work to go to Geneva? You know what I mean? All these things that you had to do to go and fulfil these things at that time. Um, I got to 2014 and then I made the call of, right, I'm going to start up my own sort of training business as, mm. as it was with classes and, um, and PT. But I never really had a solid base. I had a decent base locally, which was okay. But I didn't have the, I didn't have the hunger for that side of the PT. I've been down that route four years previous, mm. you know, doing 35, 40 sessions a week. Yeah. I didn't have that hunger to do that, but I knew I had to survive, so I had to do what what was my bread and butter. 
Um, so I built up a stable client base, which still wasn't enough really, but I had a few commitments with certain people that, so I earned enough to get by and sustain. Um, got to 2015, went Kilimanjaro, and that's when I got back and I said, right, you're really gonna have to make a, um, a, a call of which way you wanna go now. Mm. Um, so I started to push things a little bit more, started to introduce more classes, started to put more effort in, um, and it still wasn't panning out. It still wasn't going the way I thought it was gonna go based on the people that I know, the reputation that I thought I had. It still was a challenge every day to get 15, 16 people to rock up to a class knowing that you don't know who's there and who isn't there. Mm. But again, the teaching elements of things, I've always enjoyed that, I love that because that's just my personality, creating new classes, keeping things spontaneous, keeping things totally different and lead from the front. Whereas the PT side of it, I was losing that much desire to do it because, don't get me wrong, when I conducted a session, I was always 100%, I was always switched on, but it was a case of, right, that session's done now. And then I was like living like I was six years previous, as in having to wait two hours for the next session or doing this. And all of a sudden, five PT sessions was taking 12 hours. Yeah. And it was just, I, well, I understand the industry, I understand the game, that's what it was about. And I just kept saying, don't, I don't want to live this life anymore. I'm not, mm-hmm. I love waking up in the morning, don't mind being awake late at night, but I was trying to figure out which way was best. And then it came to a, a cricket match where I was doing the warm up and I got scouted by a head coach of a first class team in Pakistan that basically came over to me and said, would you be interested in coming to Pakistan and working with our, um, our players? And at the time I was a bit like, where's that come from kind of thing? Yeah, whatever. Exchange numbers, exchange email address. Um, it was a little bit late in the line to get visas and stuff at the time. So I didn't hear anything off him. And then true to his word, come January 2016, he said, would you be interested? Would you be keen to come out with us in uh, end of August 2016? I was like, yeah, I'd love to. You know, And then again, all went a bit quiet, waiting for contract, waiting for this, waiting for that. Closer to, all of a sudden, bang, 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 bang. And I was over there. And that was the start of the, the process of, of obviously me playing the game, which got all my cricket experience, which I can incorporate in my coaching. The training, which is my bread and butter, to then taking my training and habits and lifestyle with players. And then you turn into like an ambassador in the training world on the subcontinent. You know, when I was in Pakistan, I did two seasons in Pakistan and, you know, I got amazing coverage amazing media coverage because i was a westerner the first westerner to have an impact in domestic cricket over in pakistan and there was a lot of interest so you got like i was having more selfies than the players when you go to certain places that you learn to culture difference then you learn to how blessed we are with facilities equipment and food you look at the comparison, the hotels we all stayed in were great, you know, majority, 90% of the time, were good hotels. Um, and the difference that you made was huge and then it went on from there and then last year went into franchise cricket which is then a global international scale. So my name's on there and then I got scouted and well recommended by a lead physician who was ex-Bangladesh national physio, Indian physio, uh, physio. Uh, been in the game well respected for me 30 years recommended me to Bangladesh as a SNC trainer I mean I don't like the word SNC I absolutely hate the word SNC strength and conditioning I absolutely hate it 
but that's what they use over there as a terminology. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, so got to implement everything I know. And because obviously cricket's my number one sport, you can interlink new techniques, quirky techniques, plus the background of um, all the other stuff that you learn from the training business, you know, from a biomechanics mm -hmm. to um, things like, even, even daft things to like even aqua aerobics learning to the recovery sessions in the pool, looking at the different dynamics, looking at the, you know, and it's, it's now thought of in that environment. It, don't get me wrong, I use the quote, science is a beautiful thing. We all love science, but don't be scared to push the boundaries is what I say. And that's what over there you have to do based around your facilities, but you can still do a core session. You don't need to have a proper Loughborough University posh gym with S&C platforms and this, that, the other. And touch wood, with my ways, my ethos, my philosophies, very rarely pick up many injuries at all. Mm -hmm. Any severe injuries, that's a certain fact. Um, and I think, I think what would play a part in your success is, um, well, you're very motivating. Yeah. You know. Well, that's I leave from the front. So we're doing fitness testing when I go back in March. Mm. And our fitness test criteria, as it stands at the moment, is a, is a little bit dated. To other, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a little bit dated in terms of, um, and we're going to tweak and change that over the next twelve months. But I'm going to work with obviously the head trainer who works with the national team. He's a nice guy to see how we can implement better structures. But our facilities at the cricket board, the gym facility is like proper old school, but big space, got massive potentials, got a lot of kit. But the indoor facility is not great, so we don't have the access to like bod pods and VO2 max testing and all of that stuff. So we just keep it dead simplified. Bottom line is, does it really care? No. Can we implement stuff to simple stuff? Yeah, we can. And bottom line is, these guys are that hungry to play cricket and to learn. That They're learning every day. So I use my YouTube channel for training ideas mm. and certain routines. Um, I join in every single session like I would do if I was in the gym. So they bounce off my energy enthusiasm. If we're doing a bleep test, I'll join in on the bleep test. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not a coach that's just gonna, and I class myself more now as a sport and fitness professional. So interlinking the two together and more as a coach, because that's what we are. We are coaches at the end of the day. Um, and trying to get the guys to bounce off. Don't get me wrong, it's tiring at times out there when you wake up, oh, here we go again, I've got to do three sessions. I haven't got to, that's my choice to do it, but I've learned in three years to be clever with my exertion levels. I still have many days where I literally can't get out of bed. That happens maybe once every five weeks or something like that, or once every four weeks, just doing too much, you know, overtraining, whatever else. But that's, you know, in a nutshell, pretty much is where I'm at with with work and you're making a difference at the end of the day mm -hmm. and the money's exceptional so and i suppose it's better is it is it more or less i don't know is it a better lifestyle for you in terms of you mentioned four pts taking 12 hours is it a better lifestyle yeah. in terms of is it i could go to work for five? three hours and i'm done and i'm back in the hotel room. really <laughs> that's really good what three three hours like five days a week that's it no it's not oh. like that <laughs> so Lindsay, i've just had six week tour and we didn't have one, I didn't have one day off. But that one, so the days where we have recovery days, I'm still busy because I've installed a policy where the boys are training on off days during competition. So I've organised the group sessions. Most of my training with the boys is group sessions. 
to keep that team morale and whatever else. So I'll have the batsman in one session for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, never go over the fatigue or threshold. Keep the sessions quick, quick, quick changing. So using stuff that you'd use in a typical class environment, but in a different way, in a different concept. Short explosive, bang, bang, bang. So you never go into so body. So in terms of like muscle memory and things like that, you're never going to exert players ridiculously mm. based on their current levels. Um, it's teaching them that when they get into competition, they do all this hard training and they're going up like, and when I don't want to start playing games and it starts doing that. Mm. So it's still going up, but gradually and slowly. Mm. So we'll do. Uh, and then at the start of the day, every day is different depending on what match we're playing what type of match we're playing, the situation of the game. So the training would, and we have squad players. So the squad players would train with me, then their skill work as well. So they're practicing their batting or their bowling. So it's so a typical day, for instance, could be we're at breakfast table at 6.50 in the morning. We leave for the ground uh, on a match day, say 10 to 8, warm up is 8.30, uh, 9.30 start. Lunchtime, we get 45 minutes. So, if I have squad players before, so if we're fielding, I might take two squad players. So, it's four squad players, take two, do some training in the gym, whichever facility we've got in the stadium. So, it's all like a cast iron dumbbell. So, I take some resistance bands and stuff like that in. And then the other two or the four will do skill work at lunch, but the other two then, when we're batting, will come in the gym with me in the afternoon. Then we'll do some basic Pilates yoga moves at the end of the day, just all together for eight to 12 minutes, just to release everything. Mm-hmm. Um, then they have an ice bath, which is proper old school, as in literally <laughs> throw ice in there, throw them in there, um, to the point of, we've got protein over there now, and they're only skinny little boys, so it's like literally trying to install that recovery in 18 times. Um, and then they've got the recovery salts, so we've got a sponsor with Fizz, that they give us a salt so we use them through the day. And then at night time, some of the squad players might say, can I train again? And we'll train again. And that's okay. that's like one day. But then it's action-packed. A practice day might be good. So a practice def- day is more relaxed. But I, for my role, because I get involved in all the skills, mm. so catching practice or catching balls for the bowlers or flicking balls, throwing balls at batsmen, I've never got an off valve. But that's my personality anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, but it's good, it's good, and, it, and it's challenging, and every day is different. I guess for you now, this fits in great with your life now, and I think with everybody, you move through your life cycles within your life, isn't it? So, um, this suits you great now, what is in the future for you, or is it still this in your immediate future? Or? Well, the thing is, I've got, I've got a partner... And it and she's got kids, and it works. It's obviously it's it's obviously difficult being away kind of thing, but we speak every day. The beauty of it, like video calling, WhatsApping, whatever else, is dead easy these days. Um, it adds to why she, uh, how she, you know, her feelings towards me, for my job and everything. And she loves what I do as a profession. She loves that the fact that I'm travelling the other side of the world to make a difference and, and you know, the subcontinent way of life. Um, and also, it, the more it progresses, the more the family side will integrate with my job as well. So, like, later this year, we get to go to Sri Lanka in August as part of an Asia Cup. 
kids all days, so they're going to come out for a couple of weeks mm. uh, whilst I'm out there working, which perfect, they get to experience a completely different world. Mm. Um, then there's also like our schedule, for instance, this year, Bangladesh are coming to England for over July and August, so it means I'm going to be working at home I'm, get, right, I'm getting nice. paid for it. So, and, and, and I'm never away for as long as I was before. So I was away, longest I've been away was four months. That was quite tough in the mm. subcontinent, living ground hotel, ground hotel. You just got to the point of sick of going to the gym, sick of this, sick of that. Mm. Um, so we always, you know, any one time, the most I'm away would be six weeks, depending on the tour. Whereas now, it's going to be condensed more. So I go end of this month, March, we have two weeks preparation and two and a half weeks of game time and then I'm done. Then I'm back home. So it'll, it, it works. It's like a case of, yeah, it's hard when you're away, but in the same breath, I can't earn the money that I'm earning over there in this country. Mm. And it's also part of what my mum did. My mum travelled for 20 years as a HR consultant, she visited so many countries, Guatemala, Morocco, Sri Lanka, South Africa, um, Mexico, China, Hong Kong, you know, she worked in the clothing industry and she spent a lot of time, but them days were different, you know, the longest she spent away from us when I was 18 years of age was six months when she was in Guatemala, and then were the days where you had your, your old modem dial up and you could speak to your mum on <laughs> Skype, but with the time difference it was always all over the place. So I know the importance of coming home and I know the importance of, uh, of working away. Um, and it, and, it, and it, again, it'll never get any easier, but you also have to, there's an element, yeah, there might come a time in a few years where I might think, right, okay, do I change the path? But if I can continue to work based on so long away, so long back at home, then I don't see, to give us a better quality of life, to give me a better quality of life, to give the family a better quality of life, mm. and to get to experience different countries and different stuff like within my work, I don't see why it can't continue for five, ten years easily. Mm. You know, and, and, and things happen, we don't know that kind of thing, so you have to maybe make change or sacrifices, but it's, you know, and I've always said, it's a big world out there, and as long as you talk and you've got a respect factor and you can communicate and you understand where you're at, then it's, it's perfect, mm. really. And there's a lot of people that work uh, away from home like that, isn't there? Armed forces, like you say, your yeah. mum. Yeah. A lot of people. Well, you, have people you, you have people that are in the UK that might spend five nights away from, oh, from yeah. home in the yeah. UK. Yeah. Now, what it means is when I'm back now is our time is precious and we actually go out you know we're always doing stuff we'll we'll go on walks or we've got adventure or nights away and stuff and it actually reinforces the relationship where you're actually doing more quality not where it's expensive stuff just simple stuff yeah you know you appreciate that time you, I, I always say yeah. when I'm away I miss the small things like Weird, I know, but I miss waking up at half four on a Tuesday morning to go meet Gordon at M Club and go for a 10k run. I miss waking up and going Handchurch for a walk around Handchurch or to, to various other places, you know, walk down the canal or... They are the things that you miss, stuff that you can't really do out there. You can't just walk out the hotel doors and go for a walk on a 
third world country full of rickshaws and shanty towns and people going like gulping at you mm-hmm. and you and you know the pollution and stuff like that. so you can't really do stuff like that mm-hmm. um so you get to appreciate the small things in life um, and that's why when i'm back you know time it does go dead quick i even said it today to one of my good friends i find it dead hard when i'm away when i come back is if i was here permanently it's not a problem because you'd be like, oh, Thursday night meet up with the lads or Saturday's football and then Sunday we'll go and do this. And Whereas when you're away and you're only coming back for, say, four weeks, four weeks is, is you know, is, is any short space of time to do stuff. Mm-hmm. So you try and appreciate, even just sit in and just have a takeaway or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's just, mm-hmm. it's appreciating the small things. But also, you know, it's wanting to... And when I come back, now it's nice that I can relax. Because, mm. you know, you go away for six weeks and six weeks. It is intense. You know, you, you live in a, a team environment. Coaches, management. You're eating with the same people every day. Um, you're going socialising with the same people every day. And I, I, I do like my own company. I do. Mm. I always have done since I went to Australia when I was 19. I learned to appreciate my own company. Mm. I am happy to sit at a bar and have a beer on my own with a bucket of nuts and then make a few phone calls back home and then go to bed. I'm happy to do that. Whereas sometimes, you know, you get dragged into team dinners, you get invited to this, you get invited to that. And sometimes you do just want to say, well, listen, got a day off today. Can I just go to the gym in the morning? No, I'll tell you what, can I go breakfast, then go to the gym an hour and a half after that, then go and sit in the sauna for 20 minutes, then go and train at night time, have some tea and then go to bed. But it don't work that, you know. So, but it's but I'm grateful though, and I'm I'm grateful of, of of the situation, and I take every day as it comes. I've I've been in that I've been in that routine for a long time. Um, take every day as it comes. Keep your feet on the ground. Um, don't don't get above yourself. If things happen, great. Um, if things get offered to you, brilliant. Uh, nothing's in writing until it's official don't take anything for granted and and just literally embrace it and that's all you can do and then you have you know we have choices at the end of the day you can either choose to live it and do something different i'm I'm always destined to do something different because that's just my personality um but i also won't let things get in my way and if there are things in the way or hurdles and obstacles to overcome try to overcome or Mm. if you can't then try to compromise mm. and anything can be achieved I think a lot of people you know I respect anybody that goes to work 9 to 5 I really do that's not for me um, but you know there are times you can take gambles and even as families you can take gambles and that people I speak to that oh, I love following you where are you now and this that and they say oh, I've been offered this job in Dubai and oh, I don't know about this and so on why you do it? You can always come home. You're only a day away. It doesn't work out. Give yourself six months. At least you say you've done it. At least you say yeah. you've experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is a big world. And I know it's, it is scary. It is, you know, it's not plain sailing. But don't be scared. Take a bit of a gamble. Because mm. once you do make a gamble, you actually think, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Then look at your living for your kids. Look at, I know friends that have emigrated to Australia. You know, mm. they've got a better quality of life. You know, I would love to go and live in the sun somewhere. It's not all glam living in the sun, let me tell you. 
Nothing well, better. It's definitely not going to live in the rain. <laughs> no, no, it's it, yeah. I mean, it's different for me because my sun isn't sunbathing sun. And if you were going somewhere to work, the, what the difference is is that when you finish your day, and you can jump in a like for me in a hotel, I could jump in a swimming pool with the sun setting. If you were there, and I know it might be Bangladesh and it's third world, but even in that half an hour period, you can't do that at home. And if you were in Australia. You could go for a walk on the beach. You can go to mm-hmm. see. There's, it's all different types, and it's different types of quality of living, like going on a barbecue or doing this and doing that. Yeah. But there's nothing stopping it. You can't do. What's an excellent, beautiful, sublime life for you? What does it look like? The way my path is now is about um, having a good family. Um, being a role model for kids so they look up to me in terms of what I do as a profession and how I am as a person as well Um, let's see their smiles on the faces when they get to travel to exotic or different places as well so they get to share my adventures or my life through their lives as well Um, have a healthy committee relationship where there's this you know it is it's exciting it's it's exhilarating and it's different make every day different and that's what we try to do and and embrace it really and just make sure that everybody's safe and secure and obviously from a family perspective and then to you know spend as much time as I can with my friends when I'm back home and you know with the beauty of social media and stuff these days that you can always stay in touch with people which is great but it's also doing the smaller things and the basic things in life. I think now it's more to learn to appreciate the smaller things in life. And also, do you know what? At the end of the day, and I've said this to a lot of people over the years, even I always stand by it. If you're not happy, you make a, you, you have a choice to make a difference. You have a choice to change your life. And I've always said that from day one. You can't look at other people, blame other people. You have a choice yourself to, to, to make a better life for yourself or a happier life for yourself. And... If you choose to to stay on the same path, that's your choice. That's fine. And don't disrespect that. I respect that totally. There's always got to be reasons why. But we live in a, a completely different society these days. And I think the, mo- the biggest priority is to try to be as happy as possible for you and your family, uh, for, for your loved ones and people close to you. And you try to do that as best as possible. And there might be some accommodating on the way. There might be some tears along the way. Might be some hard decisions along the way. Um, but if your end goal, like as my end goal would be, is to, to keep succeeding and keep fulfilling my dreams, and, and you know what? If you fall out with somebody, shake each other's hand, go for a beer, give them a hug, give them a kiss, move on kind of thing. Don't hold any grudges, don't hold any malice. Because there's no point, because it can be taken from us like that mm. at any one point. And if you don't get on and you don't like each other, you can respect each other and just move on and do different lives. You don't have to be in contact. You don't have to do anything else. And, you know, don't, you don't need to sit there and backstab. Got something to say, bring it up, say it, deal with it, move on. Mm. And I think our, our world these days is we're in this bubble of, of we have to go to work and do this. We have to go and do the shopping, we have to go and do this and this. Yeah, they're the essential things that we have to do. I get that, I understand that. 
but there's also an element where you've got to be happy with yourself and I think we're in an environment now where a lot of people and that's why mental health is becoming such a big thing at the moment um, because there's a lot of people that are living with a lot of inner demons and not able to deal with them um, or cope with them and, and that's what's happening and just for me what you can do is just enjoy it mm. as best as you possible and there will, there will be shit times there will be sugarcoat anything there are shit times but it's yeah. what you do as a person to try and combat them or move on for them if mm. you choose if somebody holds a grudge against you you can't do anything about it mm. if you made a mistake years ago and actually, if you analyse the situation, well, hang on, really? Did I really do that wrong? Probably didn't, really. Mm. You know what I mean? So. I like that. So there's there's an element of things you can control and change. Yeah. But also, as you say, um, maybe you can't change something. No. And then it's the way that you look at it and... Yeah, you can choose. The thing is, I see these days where a lot of people are... You know, people, we, 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 I heard it the other day is that we, we don't, as people now in society, we probably don't talk like we used to because of mobile phones and social media and this, that, the other. People don't sit around the table and keep the phones in the pockets or leave the phones at home. You know, it's, it's a society we live in that's completely different. You've got six year old kids now that are using mobile phones, iPads, and whatever else. People have stopped talking, you know, and then. And sometimes, that's why I've always said, talking is the greatest form of medicine. And if you are, if somebody is upset or is angry or whatever else because of your actions or somebody else's actions, try to deal with it or move on. Mm. Don't, what's the, point of, what's the point of holding it like that? But actually, if you looked at it deeper and went into the psychological stuff, the only reason that people hold on to stuff for as long as they are is because they're effectively not happy with their own life and they're trying to finger point and pinpoint it other people. Mm. And that's what I learned. You know, if you're not happy in your own life, you change it. Mm. Or try changing. Or make changes. I think part of the reason why I do this pod I'm doing this podcast is I mean it's it's in my own time, it's I'm, yeah. I, it's not, you know, some sort of money making idea primarily anyway for me. Um is you say people don't talk anymore. And I was finding myself listening to a lot of podcasts, yeah. wanting to ask my own questions and um, wanting to specify the topics that, are, that I'm listening to, or, but also wanting to sit opposite a real person yeah. speaking to them. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've done a few conversations and I've absolutely loved it. Yeah. I found out things about people that I never knew before. The quality of the conversations have been amazing. The learning opportunity for me and hopefully others has been hmm. outstanding. Yeah. You know, it is, it is, and I'm very grateful to have this small, you know, I, I've I'm a single parent working family and yeah. I don't get a lot of time but this is my free time and I've yeah. loved it. I've loved being able to to speak to people and, yeah. and learn from it. Yeah, that's good. Because um, everybody, everybody's different, aren't they? And that's the thing, that's the unique thing about it is that everybody, everybody is different. 
that's why people created the way that they were and unfortunately there are a lot like it's like there's a lot of shit in the world um but that's that's what it is and you can choose to watch sky news all day or choose to pick up a paper and read paper and then believe in propaganda and believe in what they want you to believe you know there's a big world out there that we're, we're getting drawn into we're being told what to do all the time i believe we are and i think there's a very powerful tools and i am big into things like conspiracy theories and things like that that's just my mindset of always searching or looking for um, a different answer to something else and being open-minded as opposed to saying black white that's what it is yeah you know what I mean? There's That's, different ways of looking at it. And you know, the powerful, how powerful music is, how powerful news is, how powerful papers are. You know, and we get engrossed by this. I'm just you sitting around a table, oh, I was watching the TV the other day, oh, I was I read, read, read in the paper the other day, oh, so it's true. <laughs> it's all true, it's in the paper. Oh, it's true because some guy on the TV said it. It's because they were on a boat on the radio, a bloke in a pub told me about this, so they, oh, a bloke in a pub told me that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know, it, you always have to dig deeper, you know, to truly understand something. God, yeah. <laughs> by no means do I think I know, any, I far from know anything these days. I just know that for me, my life as it stands at the moment couldn't be any better. And again, like I'll always say, is as long as you're prepared for things to happen that might not you know, might not be good. As long as you understand that and you're open-minded to that and you're able to process that when things come, then you, you can't do any more than that. You can't do any more. But if you were to live in self-pity and, and, and excuses and blame other people all the time for, for stuff, you're never going to move on and you're never going to be happy. Where can people find you on social media because you say you're, you're writing a book and I think people yeah, want yeah. to know it's where gonna be are they going to keep up to date with that so I use at the moment I'm only using Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn but I am going to use Instagram soon it's just because it's just another thing isn't it, that you've got to then manage so predominantly I use Facebook Twitter is like at Stony Stoney and LinkedIn is just Richard Stoney at Richard Stoney or whatever it is and at LinkedIn, I'm not massively active on that, but my actual profile and, and um, I've got some of my charity videos on there as well with the work and stuff. Um, but I use Twitter quite a lot for for a lot of the training stuff. So any little videos I might snippet or things like that. But Facebook's still my number one tool for anything related to charity or stuff. Do you have a Facebook page or group or is it just your profile? Just personal one I use. Oh, right, okay. But it is this year, I set myself a target at the start of the year to, to write, to actually certainly narrate and write the book, which hopefully might get published next year. So hopefully quite... And you've got, you mentioned the titles, is that is that a working title? Is that you, you're going to keep that title? The title, we might work around it depending on what publishers suggest, because obviously certain people have. I will never... What is it again? So you... you rise into the challenge. Mm-hmm. So it'll be like in the contents, would be along the lines of, and I'll show you, because I've got a, a snippet of 
rising to the challenge. So when I first wrote down this, so like we were talking about in the induction page and the contents page and stuff, so it was along the lines of, um, my name is Richard Stoney, a dedication to mum, family, friends. This is my story, my way, continue my mum's legacy in helping others through inspirational events, coping with anxiety, worries, concern, while battling my own inner demons. So we're trying to, uh, we're trying to tell the story of um, obviously going back so briefly talking about my mom because at the end of the day people relate to that so we're trying to use um, charitable events through mindset good or bad trying to build up the journey in the chapters so the first one I've just done is the talking about the mom in terms of her personal journey what she went on pre-diagnosis then the the early stage of the diagnosis and then the uh, up until she was hospitalised the first time and then we finished it when she got rushed back in in February so that's where the first bit we talked about and then I've added stuff in there about what she was to people around the world and just done so I can do a two minute voice recording of powerful words mm. uh, and then Matt's going to interlink them into, mm. into the book into the relevant parts of it the second phase will be where she nearly died the first time building up the story of the what she wanted to achieve during that period whilst undergoing intense chemo, radio and renewal of vows and all of the story and the personal side of it to the next chapter will be when she got off the plane and then the deterioration starts so that'll be yeah so and then it'll be about a, that 10 day process sorry 11 days of coming back off a Caribbean cruise to going into the doggy mark, to me talking to her about the 40 events, the challenges, then going into the challenges. It would be obviously next chapter relating to that, also talking about job loss, license loss. Um, and then it would be a case of um, through like food for thought kind of thing it's mm. post all of that and where it led me afterwards um, and then just probably briefly touch on um, taking gambles following mum's legacy in terms of work and travelling abroad body 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 blah and then it would be that closing paragraph as to what you can do so if you enjoyed listening to this podcast and maybe you've heard a few others you might like to hit subscribe um, and I'd like to thank Richard for coming on. It's been really fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciated it. No, time. thank you. I loved thank it. You. Like I always said from the start, talking is always the great form of medicine. And sometimes it doesn't make a difference what you talk about and you build up a relationship and you enjoy it. And it always makes you feel better at the end of it. So I appreciate your time as well because it's been nice for me to talk about things I probably haven't spoke about for maybe 12 months, 18 months. So it's good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.